All right, so can somebody give me a recap of Hebrews 1, 1 to Hebrews 2, 18? Timothy, you gave an excellent... So Jesus is the full revelation of, uh, of God and the exact imprint of his power. Furthermore, um, he is better than angels uh, because he is God. And therefore, uh, any temptation to follow a covenant or revert to a covenant ministered by angels is foolish in light of the fact that we have a covenant administered by Christ and that the uh, consequences of rejecting such uh, a covenant administered by Christ would be far more severe than the, than the faithfulness of God to punish those who are disobedient to the old covenant. Um, furthermore, uh, Christ is the fulfillment of what mankind was supposed to be, and therefore um, everything is in subjection under him, even as we uh, see that he had to go to the cross to receive glory. And so he uh, calls us as well to uh, suffer well so that we might enter into glory. Uh, therefore, he is also our high priest able to identify with us, uh, both satisfying the wrath of God um, and uh, imputing to us his righteousness. Did I get it about right? Yeah, that's great. Uh, so <clears throat> Jesus, the son, is better than everything that's come before. Uh, he is in himself the fulfillment of all of God's promises, uh, the events in salvation history, uh, the patterns, the typological patterns and structures and institutions and people that God has given, uh, specifically that we might understand God's salvation. Uh, Christ has come to fulfill those things so that we, we see clearly like he's a greater prophet in chapter 1, and he is a greater uh, king in Hebrews 1 and 2, better than David and Adam. And he is uh, a better priest because uh, he is able to offer purification for sins and to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Um, <clears throat> uh, Cromers, just so y'all know, uh, since uh, Timothy said it, um, the, the context for our letter, we don't know who the author is of Hebrews. There's speculation, but it really doesn't matter because we don't ultimately know. Um, the audience of this particular letter are probably mostly Hebrew, uh, formerly Jewish Christians. Uh, not exclusively, but mostly uh, formerly Jewish Christians uh, in a congregation in Rome. That's probably what's happening uh, where they are, who they are, it's likely during the 60s. In 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And so a lot of what he's talking about is, uh, seems to be still ongoing with sacrifices and Levites and that kind of stuff. Uh, but it, these, these uh, Christians, the he Hebrews Christians, Hebrew Christians are suffering for the Christian faith to such a degree that they're actually looking, they're thinking about going back to Judaism uh, to escape the, 
to escape the persecution. Uh, because at that time, Judaism was a protected religion in Rome. And during the 60s was when um, persecution started to become really rampant with Christians, especially under Nero, Emperor Nero. And so these Christians are having a really hard time because of their faith. And they're saying, you know what, let's just go back to the old covenant. Uh, and so the author of Hebrews has been starting this, uh, his argument by saying, listen, the Son, Jesus, the Son of God, is better than everything that's come before. He's, he's the true word, like the prophets have spoken in former days. God spoke to us through the prophets, spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his Son, so God himself is the source of revelation and the messenger of revelation. Um, and then he goes on to say that uh, the Son is better than the angels because the Son is God and angels are created beings. Why he would say that would be because uh, in Hebrews 2.2 2, as well as in Acts 7 and then uh, in Galatians 3 we understand uh, that even though it didn't say it in the book of Exodus, that it was actually angels who were the intermediaries or mediaries uh, of the Old Covenant. So when Moses received the Old Covenant, he was receiving it from the Lord, but through angels. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, if, if, there's a, if this Old Covenant was faithful in executing justice against wrongdoers, uh, by holding everyone accountable for disobedience, and that covenant was mediated by angels, how much more so will the judgment be for those who fall away from the new covenant, which is mediated by the Son of God Himself? So if it was bad for a covenant given, to, given by angels, if you disobeyed, how much more so a covenant given by the Son of God Himself? And that's essentially Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 2, it's... Uh, Christ is the, uh, essentially he's the better Adam, he's the better David, uh, and he's the faithful high priest who's like us in every way so that he can serve as our high priest before God and we might be forgiven and enjoy God's presence. Uh, that's a very, very quick overview. Timothy did an excellent job of doing it. Um, but if you haven't, if you, and you had the time, especially since y'all are going to be traveling, the uh, those other... Uh, teachings are online, the audio. Um, so anyway, mm -hmm. and so we move to Hebrews 3, and can I have someone read uh, Hebrews 3, uh, 1 to, oh actually, somebody read Hebrews 3, and then somebody read Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. Okay. Um. All right. You want to read it? In, uh, I'm going to give you the handheld. Or Timothy's going to give you the handheld. All of three, please. Yep. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, 
just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant of all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Warning against unbelief. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end of the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned? Those bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thank you, brother. Uh, somebody read Hebrews 4? Timothy, just go ahead and do it. Oh, or Wyatt? Get you some, Wyatt. <laughs> All right. Therefore, while... Therefore, while while the promise while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not unified by faith. with those who listened for we have we who be- have believed enter that rest as he said as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way and god okay And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news 
failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken off of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his words, as God did from his. From his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may feel by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-legged, two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creatures, no creature is hidden from the, his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right, thank you. Get that thing turned off. All right. <clears throat> okay, so when we look at Hebrews 3, the very beginning, uh, we see a couple of things that should uh, cause us to have our ears perked up. Uh, one is the really high and exalted language that the author of Hebrews uses to describe us. So uh, what, does he call, what does he call his recipients of the letter? Yep. Holy brothers. Or it, it could be translated because it, it's the same uh, spelling. Hey, uh, holy brothers and sisters. So holy brothers and sisters are those who are associated with Jesus. But what, what uh, in addition to this, kind of speaks to a, an exalted status that Christians have. In verse... One. Yeah, we share in a heavenly calling. I want you to notice these things because holy brothers or holy brothers and sisters, um, and then saying. Holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Um, that's going to be really important for us to see how the author of Hebrews balances uh, very strong encouragement with very strong warnings. Okay, so if we don't read these warning passages that are coming up in Hebrews, uh, well, I mean, it's Hebrews 4 is warning, uh, Hebrews 3 and 4, but particularly the Hebrews end of Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6, when he's talking about uh, apostasy, uh, if we're not reading it rightly, then we're going to misinterpret uh, what he's saying about people falling away. Okay, but for right now, the recipients of his letter, he's saying, holy brothers and sisters. Okay, first off, brothers and sisters is family language. So family of God, 
holy family members, namely saints. Uh, sorry, that was my alarm to tell you to do something about your blood sugar or something. That's a, that was a sin alarm. That's your sin alarm. We had, we had determined that. So, yeah. Whatever, you, whatever, whatever you're doing, stop it. So, holy brothers, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, namely because of Jesus. This is very high and exalted language, and we're going to have to remember that he's using this kind of exalted language as we're reading these really, really clear, stark warnings. Okay, because the warnings come across and you're like, that kind of warning makes me think you're not my friend. Uh, So we need to remember uh, what he's saying here. Okay, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is only called the apostle and Jesus is only called the high priest in the book of Hebrews. He's not called a high priest or an apostle anywhere else in the New Testament, which might surprise you. There you go, a little tidbit. Uh, That was free. Uh, This is going to become very important because throughout the entire book of Hebrews, especially as we move from 5 to 10, we're really going to start seeing how the author of Hebrews reads his Old Testament. And so it's important uh, for our purposes uh, to understand uh, that it's not just the... uh, It's not just the commands or the written law uh, that communicates something about Jesus. Uh, It's also the institutions themselves. Okay, so one thing last week that that Julie Julie said that I picked up on, I don't know if any of y'all picked up on, but needs to be corrected, and I wish he was here tonight, um, is that when we were talking about Adam and the last Adam, and I was talking about Noah being presented as a new Adam because he's given the same commands, he's given a creation uh, before him, a new creation. Uh, He sins by fruit. The sin leads to his nakedness and shame, and that nakedness and shame leads to cursing. The author uh, author of Genesis, Moses, is saying, this guy's a new Adam. Look at him. He's just like Adam, and he fails just as miserably. One of the things that Julie had said, and and I don't mean to pick on her, but this is very common, is she said, said, yeah, but where do you see that like in the words and not just pictures? And I I think I understand what she means. Like she... She's saying, yes, I can see those, like, uh, kind of like an analogous relationship between the two as, as it's described in the Bible. But where do you see Noah, the Lord spaketh to Noah, you are a second Adam, you know? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. But we have to understand how people are writing and how they're writing, not only the words they're writing, but the way that they're writing communicates uh, something about their intentions, right? So my wife and I were just talking about uh, irony and uh, sarcasm this morning, um, Namely because, namely because I'm, I'm uh, too sarcastic <laughs> at times. Uh, but uh, so when the author of uh, the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah, is writing about an Israelite idolater who cuts down a tree and takes half of it 
and makes an idol out of half of it and bows down and worships it. And then the other half, he cuts up and burns it for firewood to keep himself warm. Uh, he's trying to do more with that than just tell you information. He's using irony and sarcasm to belittle and show the absolute stupidity of idolatry. Because you're bowing down to a piece of wood that you also burn. Like, so how good is that idol? Right? Uh, So in the same way, when we are looking at Old Testament uh, people or events or institutions or what have you, like uh, the Exodus or... Levitical priesthood. Or the Levitical system, including the sacrifices. When we're talking about the Davidic king. uh, When we are looking at uh, creation. When we're looking at rest. All of these are Old Testament themes or Old Testament people. Adam, that's a big one. Offspring, that's another one. When we're looking at all of these Old Testament, uh, either people, places, things, events, institutions, whatever, uh, it's important as you're reading the book of Leviticus for you to understand how Leviticus is outlining the the Levitical sacrificial system, uh, so that you might understand how Israel had to live in order to, to enjoy God's presence. But more important than that, we understand that Scripture says all of the Old Testament, every bit of it, is bearing down on Christ. So we're to understand all of these things, and there are a lot more than just those. Those are just examples. We need to understand all of these things in light of Christ. So the tendency sometimes is to not read according to the intentions of the Old Testament author, but rather, because we have our New Testaments, we're trying to find Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Because you you think about uh, purity laws. And you, you're reading uh, women's menstruals laws. And you're like, wow. Okay. This, this is something. This is something. I can say that. But ultimately, it's pointing to Christ somehow. Right? And so, blood, purity, uh, presence of God, holiness... All of those things are associated as a part of the Levitical priesthood and system that finds its fulfillment and its consummation and its end or completion in Christ. Uh, Sabbath is another thing. So a lot of people uh, still observe the Sabbath as the day of the week. And the Sabbath is a type of rest. But we're to understand Sabbath in light of Christ. Okay, And so as we go through the book of Hebrews, we're going to have to maybe broaden our understanding of how we read our Bibles, not to say, please don't hear me say, that we're giving new meaning to a text. What we're doing is we're understanding the fuller meaning of an Old Testament text. Does that make sense?
So when we read creation, Genesis 1 and 2, we now know that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when it says God created the world, we're now understanding that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working in coordination, in perfect unity, uh, inseparably, to bring about creation. And so that's not giving the text new meaning. That's just giving the text a fuller meaning that God intended for us to understand through the human author. Okay, so when we're going to read about Levitical priesthood and we're reading about Davidic king and rest and all of these things, because we believe uh, in what's called, we learned it two classes ago, progressive revelation, unlike uh, Mormonism or unlike Islam, uh, Christians do not believe that God just dropped a book out of the sky, totally written, beginning to end, uh, for us to know everything about Him. We don't believe that. God has revealed Himself progressively over history so that the book of Genesis gives us lots of information about creation and lots of information about God, but we understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. While that gives us very helpful revelation about who God is, that revelation itself is not as specific or as detailed as you'll read in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it's just as much revelation. It's just as much God's revelation. It's just as inspired, written by God. But it does not have the degree of specificity and details so that we're understanding when we look at Genesis 12 and we hear God... Uh, give Abraham a promise of a land and an offspring, it's only because our, the revelation of God is progressive and we now have a New Testament canon that came later that we can understand, oh, in Genesis 12, Abraham or God didn't just mean primarily Isaac as an offspring. He meant Jesus, which is why the New Testament authors are saying Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David, who is the son of Abraham, who is the son of Adam. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's why you're like, when you look at the Passover, something like that, and you're like, wait a minute. Jesus was crucified during the time of the Passover, and the Passover meant that people were passed over and spared God's wrath and judgment, if there was an innocent, perfect lamb that was slain, and people could have enjoy God's presence because of this regular reminder of the Passover, and all of this stuff is happening at the exact same time of Jesus, the, the gospel writers are writing these things intentionally so that you would see those things and understand, yes. That's exactly right. And it's not just analogous. It's not just, oh, the Passover is kind of like Jesus. It's, no, the Passover was given so that you would understand Jesus. Does that make sense? The Levites were given so that you would understand Jesus. We're going to keep talking about this throughout Hebrews. Okay, so I just want to make sure that we're, we're understanding. Okay, so when he's talking about Jesus and Moses... Here in verses 1 through 6, uh, we are called holy brothers or holy brothers and sisters. We share in a heavenly calling because Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. We only understand what high priest 
a high priesthood is in, in, in light of the Levitical priesthood. And we understand that this Jesus being the apostle, the, the sent one, is tied to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder of our, our, our salvation. He is the, he's the pioneer of our salvation. So he's the apostle. He's the one that God sent in order that we might be saved. Uh, he is the high priest to which the Le- Levitical priesthood, Moses and Aaron, pointed to. He's the one who uh, was faithful to the Lord who appointed him. Uh, now, in, at the end of verse 2, he begins to, to compare Jesus to Moses. And what he's picking up on is uh, Numbers chapter 12, where uh, the people of Israel are in the middle of like several chapters of totally disobeying God and rejecting Moses. Okay, Numbers 11, they're complaining about being hungry and water and all that kind of stuff. And then Numbers 12, I think it's Numbers 12, maybe it's Numbers 11. It's either Numbers 11 or Numbers 12, where like Miriam and Aaron are actually standing opposed to Moses now. And in the middle of Numbers 12, Numbers 12, 7, God finally comes and he rebukes all of Israel. And he's like, listen, I speak to Moses face to face. He is a faithful servant in my house. And meaning that y'all are a bunch of chumps, so y'all need to dial it back. Uh, And then Numbers 13, Numbers 14, we see the disobedience of Israel because of their constant complaining in the wilderness. These things lead to God judging them and saying, I'm going to litter the wilderness with your bodies. None of you who were saved out of Egypt are going to live to see the, the promised land. I'll take your kids, the second generation, who were younger than 20. I'll take all of them. But all of your dead bodies are going to be all over this wilderness because you're not getting into the promised land. And so in the middle of, it's in the middle of that that informs our context here in Hebrews 3 because he's going to talk about that wilderness testing a little bit later in the chapter and then in verse, uh, chapter 4 uh, with quoting Psalm 95. So now what is he trying to say? In comparing Jesus and Moses, I do not want you to think or believe that, that the author of Hebrews is trying to say anything negative about Moses. He's not saying anything derogatory about Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. But that's the problem. Moses was only a faithful servant in God's house. He was not a son over the house. Okay? And so the Son, the Son of God, greater than angels, greater than everything that's come before Him, He Himself is greater than Moses because He's the guy who built the house and owns it. So in the same way that you can look maybe at a house that is painted by Drew, and you say, look at this fantastic paint job. Look look at what Drew has created As glorious as that is, Drew is more glorious than that painting job because he's the source of the painting job. He can do it again. That that painting job could collapse, and he'll just do it again. In the same way that uh, 
The son who is over the house is greater than the house, the, the house itself. Uh, the builder is greater than the house. The son is the builder. God is creator of all things. That's, that's what he's trying to argue here in uh, Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. Again, he's not trying to say anything negative about Moses. He's simply saying, if you go back to Moses, you're going back to something that was pointing forward to something greater. Don't leave the thing that it, Moses was pointing towards to go back to Moses. He's only going to point you to me. So, <clears throat> we see Jesus is the pioneer, apostle, high priest of our faith. The Son is the creator of the house. Moses saw God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. Uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, we see that Moses was, was faithful in God's house despite Israel who was constantly uh, standing against him. I mean, complaining all the time. Some of you moms can, can, can get this, right? Uh, being a faithful servant in the midst of being surrounded by people who it doesn't matter what you do, they are not happy. But Moses was faithful. But he was faithful as a servant. As one who's just supposed to work in the house. He's not a faithful son over the house. Okay? So the builder is greater than the house. The creator is greater than the creation. The son is greater than the servant. And so, again, nothing bad about Moses. Moses is great, but Moses served a purpose. And, and what we're going to see ultimately is that he also is going to do this with Joshua. They point to Jesus. If you go back to them, you're going to go back to something that is by its very nature, incomplete and unfulfilled. Because part of, a major part of its job is just to point beyond itself. Okay. Um, in the same way that Moses stood opposed to the unbelieving generation around him, Jesus, in the same way, stands uh, with Moses uh, against the unbelieving generations that reject him. And he's faithful despite their unbelief. But that unbelief is what the author of Hebrews is warning us against diving into. Does that make sense? Any questions so far? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I would say that, like, uh, certainly John the Baptist is, is in the line of Old Testament prophets, of which Moses was the first uh, in Israel, that is. Um, and so Moses is kind of the preeminent prophet, so that in Deuteronomy 18, he promises, like, there's going to be a prophet that comes who's just like me, and he's going to show you where to go. Ultimately, that, that's fulfilled in Jesus. We understand that, reading reading it from the complete canonical horizon, right? But you see little glimpses as the story progresses, and you see these really, really great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, 
are big name guys. You see Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, and then you get to, and the further down you get, there's more and more revelation, more and more clarity as to what this new creation, this promised land is going to be, this Davidic king who's going to come and save. And then boom, you have John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying like, and there's, there's been, there hadn't been a greater, greater man born to women than John the Baptist. But if, if y'all belong to me, even the, the least in, in my covenant community is, is greater than John. Uh, so in the sense that Jesus fulfills the typological um, uh, pattern of uh, prophet, the office of prophet, John the Baptist would certainly be right there. Uh, Moses, Moses is a little different. You would, you would see Moses kind of uh, the next guy or the greatest guy before Jesus after Moses would be like David, who was the ruler of God's people while also serving in some ways as a prophet and priest. Um, and so, but yes, John the Baptist was very, very similar. Okay, so in verse 6 we see uh, the the teaching that we, we need to hone in on because he's giving these, these uh, uh, truths for a particular reason. So, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses pointed forward. He was testifying to Jesus. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So Moses was a, faith, was a faithful servant in the house. We, uh, Christ's people, are, are the house. So in the Old Testament, a uh, number of times, uh, Exodus 16, Hosea 8, 1, uh, Israel is identified as the house of God. Uh, now the author of Hebrews is saying, those who are in Christ, they are the house of God. And Christ is the son who is ruling over that house. But essentially, God's people are the house. But here, here's the, here's the, uh, the if-then. Here's the very important hypothetical with, a, with an implicit exhortation. Uh, Christ is faithful over God's house as the son. And we are his house, praise the Lord, good news, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Okay, so... Uh, I think everybody was here this past Sunday. Okay, so like working through Jonah, Jonah 1 and 2, like the exhortations from the sermon are, are really the same here. Um, too many of us see salvation primarily, if not exclusively, particularly in our Bible Belt culture, primarily, if not exclusively, in light of a decision that we made in the past. And while it's important that we look back on the decision that we've made in the past, we look back towards our baptism. We look back at what God has done for us uh, historically. Uh, that does not replace our obedience today. And so a decision is important, but what the author of Hebrews is, uh, is saying is that perseverance is uh, necessary for salvation. Is, right. 
Right. So looking at verse 6, we are his house. We belong to God as a part of his house because of his son. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Okay, that, that's my translation. Uh, I actually really like Gary's translation for the our boasting and our hope because it made it more clear what the object or the emphasis was there. But we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, for many Christians, quote-unquote Christians, or a lot of people who profess Christ in our culture, and I know that you know people like this, uh, it's, oh man, I gave my life to Christ back in 1972. And I was baptized, and they have not been inside the doors of a church in 20 years. But they'll tell you that they're a Christian. Why? Because they're looking at salvation exclusively as a decision that I made in the past, not a decision that I made in the past, and that I continue to make by God's grace into today and into the future. So, it's important that you make a decision to believe and repent at your conversion and your salvation. Absolutely necessary. And you're saved by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. No, no question of that. The issue is, is that Christians are to continue to repent and believe. And we are kept by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay, so we're not, I'm not saying that like a decision gets you in... And then you've got to work really hard to stay in. No, we're talking about cheap grace. We're talking about the grace that saves you is also the grace that causes you to persevere. And how, do you pers- how, how are you persevering? According to the author of Hebrews. That's in two ways. We hold fast to what? That's a question. We hold fast to our confidence. And what else do we hold fast to? Uh, I'm going to write it more like how Gary's translation was because I think that that's a better emphasis. Uh, it was essentially the hope in which we boast. Now, both of these, this is really important. There is an objective nature to both of these things. When you think about boasting and you think about confidence, one of the things that you'll, you'll immediately think of is your, is your attitude or the expression of your attitude, namely in your boasting, right? Now, confidence is an inner attitude, and I think that, that the author of Hebrews is touching on that. But more importantly... What he's trying to emphasize that you see more clearly here is what is, the, what is the object of your confidence? Who is who's the, who's the object of your confidence? Who is, the, who is the hope or what is the hope in which you boast? Jesus, the Son, the Gospel, right? What are we holding fast to? What are we holding fast to? And that's answering the broader question that we were asking that you wanted to, us to clarify is what is perseverance? And how is that perseverance necessary for salvation? So you persevere by holding 
uh, confidently to the Son and His gospel. Uh, believing the Son, believing His gospel uh, as objectively true, but also growing in that so that you are you do have an inner spirit of confidence. It's like, of course Jesus is raised from the dead. Of course He's coming again. Then that make sense? And the hope in which we boast, obviously, is the hope, the hope of the Son and the gospel that He brings. Does that make sense? Okay, so we are His house if indeed we hold fast to the Son and His gospel. That's what he's saying in verse 6. Lise, do you have a question? Boasting in our hope is one is one. Um, I'm, I'm blanking. There, it's saying something very similar, but boasting in our hope is one particular clause. Confidence is a separate clause. Then, is it's a separate thing. And so I think that confidence speaks obviously to an inner, an inner attitude that we have, uh, but it also speaks to the objective nature of the confidence itself. Namely, Jesus is our confidence. And we are to be confident in Him. Both here. This one, this one is essentially saying the same thing, but it's the hope is the Son, and the Son is the one in whom we boast. But the emphasis is on the hope, not our boasting. So we don't hold fast by boasting. We hold fast to the hope in which we boast. The boasting is a result of the hope that we have. The inner attitude of confidence is the result that we have of the confidence that God has given us, namely Jesus, the Son, and His gospel. Does that make sense? I really hope it does. We got to keep moving. Okay. Big thing. You must endure. You must persevere. And that's not going to be the the first time or the last time uh, that author of Hebrews is saying this. He's already said it in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. Uh, So the purpose and the overall argument is to say that the Son, Jesus, is faithful over God's people. And he is greater than Moses and Joshua to come. Now, when we look at 3 7 uh, to the end of our particular section, we see a quotation here of Psalm 95. And this section of Psalm 95, does anybody know in verses 7 to 11 what? What is the context of this, uh, the context to which Psalm 95 is referring? What is he talking about? Rest. Heavenly rest. Heavenly rest. Uh, but when he's talking about don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, what is he talking about? What rebellion? The rebellion that the people in the desert had against That's right. Moses. That's right. 
So there are a couple of different, couple of different experiences here that uh, he's talking about. One is Exodus 17, where the people are grumbling about not having water, uh, and they're like, we, we should go back to e- Egypt. We were better as slaves in Egypt, which is clearly unbelief. Like, we're better as slaves than as God's people. Um, and God tells Moses to strike the rock, and water comes out of the rock, right? That's, that's at uh, Massa and Meribah, which is in Psalm 95. But he's also talking about Numbers 14 that I just referenced earlier, where the people, again, are complaining, and God says, your bodies are going to litter the wilderness. Uh, you're going to die. You're not going to see the promised land. But then they try to take the promised land. They say, oh, we repent. Oh, we are so sorry. We're so sorry. No, no, no. We're going to attack these, these tribes. And Moses is like, God swore an oath that he was, you were going to die in the wilderness. Don't disobey him. But they're like, no, 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 no. We're repenting. We're repenting. And they go and they get destroyed by, by these uh, uh, pagan tribes. Um, which that helps us to understand what true repentance is. Um, <clears throat> so this, this is the particular context. Exodus 17, Numbers 14, essentially the grumbling people of Israel in the wilderness. In Psalm 95, the psalmist is saying to Israel, hey, don't be like our fathers. Don't harden your hearts. And so what does the author of Hebrews say about this? He's giving a proper interpretation of Psalm 95, and he's giving a good application. What's the first application? It's pretty much identical to verse 6 in chapter 3. Persevere. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay. In in verse 13, what is his answer to you enduring? What what is the proper response of Christians uh, when they're warned, hey, don't fall away? In verse 13. What do you see? Encourage each other. Exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, which he's going back to Psalm 95, because Psalm 95 says today, if you hear his voice, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does this particular application of his command to persevere, how does it criticize our culture, our particular culture, what's inherent to our particular culture? Disobedience. Well, that's true of every culture. So, how does his application and his command for Christians to persevere and how they're to persevere, how does that give a a critique of our... Thank you, brother. uh, How does that give a critique to our particular society or our particular culture? Aha! What's, what's behind that? That's individualism. Yes. Self-sufficiency. Yes. Yes. 
So it, it's not that being an individual is wrong because you are saved as an individual, right? You must repent and believe as an individual, correct? Okay. Think about how this strident individualism works itself out in our culture. We need to see, we need to see how powerfully our culture is pushing this narrative so that we might be able to expose it for what it is. Ton of bricks. Ton of bricks. That's excellent. That's exactly. So how do, how do you see strident individualism, before you all get excited and everything, how do you see this in our culture? Let's just give some examples. Not attending, not being with believers. Okay, all right. So, uh, quote-unquote Christians not coming to church. We're talking larger culture. It doesn't have to be Christians. It doesn't have to be the church. Self-checkout. Why do I want to... Why do... I mean, I just did it the other day. There was an open lane, an open lane that somebody and I chose to go to self-checkout. And I thought as I was at self-checkout, I didn't want to talk to her. <laughs> and it's not because of that person individually. It's just I, I didn't want I didn't want to talk. So thanks for, okay, that's the second time that I've been called out by something that is related to you. So I, you're not allowed to talk anymore, give any more answers. What else? The whole language of identity. A language of identity, yeah. Gender. Yeah, okay, all right. Yes. What else? Customer's always right. Or getting reviews on Google for a church? Absolutely. Yeah. Mhm. 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 Uh how about having 3000 channels on your TV programming to meet your every personal need and you don't watch like I don't I watch 3 of the channels. Entertainment culture, that's right. Oh, man. I mean, consumer, we're seen as consumers. Uh, yeah, consumer, fast food, entertainment, culture. And what is, what is Scripture saying about our tendency as Americans to, as Becca said, buck up, pull up our... Uh, Pull ourselves up by our what shoestrings or whatever the however the bootstraps whatever it is, and um, and get her done right. What is what is the application here? Ton of bricks. 
Were you made to be an island? No. Right. It was not good that the man was alone. Right? So when, when you were saved, you were saved by Christ, but you were saved into a people. You were saved into a house. Let me tell you, there are a lot of people in my house. And there are a lot of people in God's house. And author of Hebrews is saying, uh, one of the ways that you are able to avoid Israel's fate, namely, an unbelieving heart that rejects God's promises uh, and lives opposed and contrary to God's clear commands from his ministers and from his word is by exhorting one another in, in God's promises. Encouraging one another in the gospel. And you can't do that if, you, if we're all walking with our headphones in and our faces glare to the screen of an iPhone, which we didn't. I mean, it didn't have to be an iPhone. It could be an Android. Um, but, like, that's, that's the individualism, right? Like, headphones, and I'm down here, and I'm passing people, other image bearers, and not even giving them the time of day, recognizing that they exist. That's not what we were made for, right? How does this tie, tie into what he's going to argue later in Hebrews 10? Anybody know the, the typical passage that we go to if we're disciplining someone who've, who is failing to gather with us regularly? Yeah, where's that? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And so what does the author of Hebrews say? Here's what I hear from a lot of Christians. Especially those who haven't been coming. Ah, man, I know I need to come. I know I need to come. Man, I know I need to be fed. Um, yeah, I, I need to come. Because I'm, I'm, I know I'm missing stuff. I know I'm missing out. I know I need to, uh, to be fed by God's word. Da, 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 da. And what, is, what does the author of Hebrews say in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25? Why should you gather? Yeah, I mean, same, same thing. Yes. So, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So, how often, Christian, you don't have to say this out loud, how often, Christian, do you wake up and you're like, oh man, I do not want to go gather with God's people uh, on Sunday morning, I'm exhausted, or I feel like I'm maybe kind of sick, or I'm super tired, uh, or I just got in a fight with my spouse, and I kicked our dog, and yelled at the kids, and I'm just having a terrible morning, and I'm just going to withhold that. How many of you in those particular times are thinking, who's going to be hurt by me not being there to encourage them? Is that your default mentality when you are wrestling with whether or not to gather with the saints on a Sunday? Who's going to be hurt by me not being there because Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and the whole book of Hebrews says that I'm the agent of God's encouragement and exhortations to the believers. If not, my encouragement to you would be to think in those categories. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, we don't expect that of the pastor, right? Like, if I wake up on Sunday, I'm like, man, I don't forget it. I'm calling in sick. And then every, all the saints gather, and they're like, well, Lord bless you, and go in God's peace, you know? Um, so, so the default for us should be, how am I harming the body by not doing my part to encourage and exhort? How am I harming the body by not being there? We're not talking about every time the doors are open to the church. We're talking about corporate gathering, like Sunday morning corporate gathering for us here. Doesn't have to be in the mornings, but Sunday morning or Sunday corporate gatherings with the saints where the word is preached, hymns are sung, uh, prayers are prayed by God's people. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Uh, but he's saying that you need people to exhort and encourage you, and you need to exhort and encourage others. Why? In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Love is, love is what fuels it. Absolutely. Love for the brethren. How is that love uh, expressed uh, through... Um, well, no, the love is expressed through encouragement and exhortations. But that love that Gene is talking about, what is it to guard against? Hardening of hearts. How are your hearts hardened, though? Don't talk about fried chicken. Deceived by sin. Okay. Um, is it easier to deceive one person or to deceive an entire group of people? One person, right? Like, can you see everything clearly? Like, do you see all of reality rightly? And I, I don't. I don't. And you don't either. But when you have God's people, all God's people gathered together who are spirit and dwelt, encouraging God's people who are in spirit and dwelt with, a, with a, an objective truth, a verified truth, a true message. How much more difficult do you think it'll be for you to be deceived by your own sin? Be, be a lot harder, right? Um, do, you, do you think that it, it takes... Um, just one time of being deceived by sin for your heart to be hardened? I think it, I think it takes more than that, right? It's a gradual process of hardening, right? It's not like, you know, you speak harshly to your child and then all of a sudden you're, oh, dang, my heart became a rock. No, it's, it's, by, it's by days and weeks, months and years of speaking harshly. And then you're just doing that all the time. And I'm speaking from experience. Because that's what you know. Because you've been hardened to it. You don't even know that you're doing it anymore. Um, but when someone observes you speaking that way to your child in public, another Christian, there's an opportunity to be like, oh, wait, hold on. You're not supposed to talk that way? Oh, Wow. I've been deceived by my sin. Like, I mean, don't, don't think that like sin's out there and like, you know, it, you know, is, it's the neon lights for the gentleman's club or the drug dealer on the corner 
or the guy saying, here's your gun, shoot your wife, that kind of thing. Don't think that that's how you're going to jump into sin tonight, at least the vast majority of you. I hope all of you will not jump into sin tonight that way, okay? Why? Aren't, aren't, those, aren't, those, patent, aren't those patently obvious, right? No, sin deceives you. It deceives you. It deceives you into thinking like, oh, man, taking it. Taking that second glance at that woman is not going not gonna to hurt you. Or deceives you by saying, no, it's okay for you to share that stuff about your husband with those ladies. Or, no, everybody talks to their child like that because it's the only way that you can get them to obey. Or whatever it is. Sin's deceptive. I mean, Satan's been doing this for what? At least thousands of years, right? Long time. Really long time, right? Even longer than Gene. Even, even longer than Gene. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But what does communication imply or what does it assume? You have community. It's not just you. You can't have communication if you're the only one in the church building you got to be the body. Hand can't say to the eye, I have no need of you, right? Okay, so the strong corporate aspect of it is to exhort one another, and that's obviously tied to 10, 24, and 25 as we talked about. We were made for a body. Don't show yourself to be one who has an unbelieving heart. It's not that you have an unbelieving heart as a Christian. The author of Hebrews, you have a new heart. author of Hebrews is saying, don't... Show yourself to be one who is actually not a Christian. Don't let there be any of you that has an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Don't be that person. Um, All right. Now, in verse 14, we see a little bit of a promise after a a, uh, kind of a hard warning, right? What, what, is, what is the good news that's a, a little bit um, that's a little bit of good news after a strong warning? We've come to share in Christ. We share in Christ. Now granted, again, he gives another warning. You've got to hold to your original confidence, right? But if you're holding to your original confidence, brother, sister, you better believe that you've come to share in Christ. You're sharing in Christ. Okay. Uh, Psalm 95 continues. He quotes it again. This is the second time now. I think he's going to quote it five times. So Psalm 95 is kind of a big deal uh, for his argument here. Psalm 95, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So, again, author of Hebrews is teaching us how to read our Bibles. It's not, he's not saying, he's not looking at law here to instruct us. 
he is looking at narrative. He's looking at narrative, and then he's looking at a psalm that's exhorting from that particular narrative in order to teach. And what is he saying? Well, who are those who heard and yet rebelled? It's Israel. It was God's covenant people. The offspring of Abraham. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It was unbelieving covenant people. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? It was unbelieving covenant people whose unbelief worked itself out in disobedience to the covenant that God had made. And so what is he saying? What is he saying to us? If we're in Christ, are we covenant people? Uh, Yes, please say yes. Okay, if we're in Christ, we are new covenant people. What is he using Israel as as a warning against? Listen, God's old covenant people... A lot of them were unbelievers. They disobeyed because they didn't trust God's promises. You better be a different kind of covenant people. And he's going he's to outline in the rest of Hebrews by saying how we are a different covenant community. Don't, don't get me wrong. But he's saying, listen, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, they, all this happened to serve as a warning and an illustration for us. We need to believe God's promises We need to believe the covenant that he's given and the promises associated with that covenant. We need to obey that covenant. And we need to enter into God's rest. In verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief must not, cannot be the mark of the Christian life. It can't be. Now, praise the Lord. As D.A. Carson would say, like in the Passover, it wasn't, you know, if two unbelieving Jews, or two Jews, not unbelieving, two Jews who were offering sacrifices on the Passover before the angel of death came, and one of them did it, but he was like really shaky in his faith, and one guy was super confident that God was going to be fine, uh, doing everything as he promised, and the people would be fine. Which of those people were saved? Both of them. Because it was not, the promise was not conditioned upon the strength of the faith, but the, the presence of faith, however weak it is, right? In the same way, I'm, I'm not saying that like you got to have this uh, gargantuan type faith in order to uh, inherit the new creation, but we are moving towards our gargantuan size faith. It's unbelief that destroys not weak faith. Does that make sense? A lot of people are saddled with weak faith. And uh, you should be encouraged that the Lord accepts you not on the basis of the strength of your faith, but on the presence of faith itself. But you can't stay there. We need to grow. All right. Uh, Chapter 4. Another application. So what is he saying? What's the application here? Right. 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, you need to persevere in reaching it. Now, how are you to reach it? If unbelief is what kept them out, faith is what gets you in. Right. Right. Persevere with faith. But again, um, <clears throat> again, this, this, uh, this kind of warning, um, strong warning and a little bit of a, of a, of a balm. Right? Okay, he gives us, you need to make sure, we need to make sure that you you reach this rest. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, like a godly fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You need to make sure that you reach this rest. Okay, well, that's kind of like scary. I hope I I reach rest. What does he say in verse 3? We who have believed under that rest. So he, he, again, he's balancing these strong warnings with these promises. Hey, you better endure. Those who en- and those who endure are those who have been saved by Christ. And you've been saved by Christ. Right? So there's this constant balancing of promises and warnings, promises and warnings, promises and warnings uh, that the author of Hebrews is going to do that's going to help us to understand that in the future. Uh, okay. Lastly, and we can continue this into next week uh, because of <clears throat> it's going to continue into uh, 5 verse uh, 14. Uh, what, is, what is God's rest? We're supposed to reach this rest, right? That's kind of important for us to have an idea of what it is. What is God's rest? Okay, what does that mean? You just put an adjective inside of it, in front of it. You didn't define it. Huh? Faith rest. Okay, like resting from your works. Yeah, resting in faith. That's that's one aspect of it for sure. Because he he's going to talk about that resting from your works in a little bit. Yeah, what is God's rest? I think heaven. Heaven? Okay. I think being peaceful knowing that he's our Savior. Can you have rest on earth? Uh, yes. yes, temporarily. Yeah? I think it's, yeah. I think it's being peaceful knowing that God is your Savior. Mm-hmm. And living the way that you should live. Being more Christ. So I think from verse 3, we can see that we who have believed enter that rest. So this rest has both the present reality and a future reality. So it can't just be heaven, because we're not there yet. At least those of us in the building. Um, And so it's a present reality that we have, that I think he's going to outline in in a little bit, uh, the faith rest that Gene is referring to, as well as to a, a future rest that I think you're touching on. Heavenly, maybe new creation kind of thing. Uh, let's go back to Genesis 2. That's the first place you see rest. Where is that rest? Somebody's, somebody say, where is it? Somebody say something about? Day 7. 
Okay, seventh day of creation. Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What's uh, special about that day? What's special about day seven? No work. Relaxation. Adam and Eve worked. What's that? Adam and Eve worked. That's right. Day one and six, or one through six, says what? It was evening and morning, first day. Da, 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 da. So day seven doesn't end, which means what doesn't end? God's rest. So, thank you for your excitement. Um, thank you. It's always she's she's my cheerleader. Thanks, babe. Uh, so Genesis two. Seventh day, God's rest doesn't end. Now, Adam and Eve, Adam's put in the garden and commanded to work it. But he's working it in light of God's rest. So, Adam and Eve are enjoying God's rest in the garden. What happens, though? Sin, the fall, Genesis 3. So, what happens to rest? Do you think we've lost it or it's broken because of, because of sin? Right? Obviously, we've lost it because the people in the wilderness are like, you're not going to enter into my rest. So they, they don't get it. Right? Okay, so Genesis, Genesis 2, we're thinking, interpreting the Bible in terms of its complete horizon. All right? Genesis 2, we're introduced to rest. In a, in a minute, we're going to see how well y'all have been listening to Pastor Drew as he's been preaching through Judges. <clears throat> rest is in the garden. So I want you to see that rest biblically is tied uh, to uh, God's place, uh, God's people, uh, God's presence. So in Eden, Adam, and Adam obviously represented Eve as well, enjoyed God's presence. God walked with them, right? He walked with them. And they enjoyed his unhindered place, or unhindered presence uh, in God's place, namely Eden. And Adam was given the responsibility of extending the boundaries of the garden to the whole world, right? But sin broke that. So what's broken? All of it. What, what happens when they sin to Eden? They're kicked out of the land. They're exiled. Right? Does that happen again in the Bible? Who gets exiled? Out of where? Right? In the promised land, who lived there? 
What do they get to enjoy through the temple? God's presence. Like, so we don't see this written out like you would in the letter, like Romans, like in an epistle. But in the narrative and in the full story of redemption, God is giving us patterns, places, institutions to help us understand what he's doing in Christ. Is it an accident that creation is in Genesis 1 and 2 and a garden, Genesis 1 and 2, and a garden new creation is in the last two chapters of, the, of Revelation 21 and 22? Creation, new creation, garden, new garden. Is that an accident? No. The whole story in between is how God is getting us from the garden that we lost because of sin to the new creation. Sandwich. Sandwich. Mark Sandwich. What's this? What'd you say? Yes, Inclusio. Extra points. Gold star to Becca. Gold star. Okay, so rest we see in Genesis 2 and it's lost because of sin. Where's the next thing that you kind of see related to rest? Huh? What'd you say? Sabbath. Where does the Sabbath enter? Nope, before that. It's with Israel. But that is right. Well done, Jim. Gold star. Exodus 16. And then in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Exodus 16 is what? Manna. Manna from bread. Or manna from heaven. The bread. You can collect it on the sixth day, on the seventh day. You don't collect it, you get twice as much on the sixth day. And then some people go out on the seventh day to collect it, and they're like, there's no bread. And God's like, you fools. I told you to collect more. Why do you, not or why do you keep disobeying me? So, this is an interesting point. Is the Sabbath in creation, like the institution of the Sabbath, the seven day, seventh day of Sabbath rest, do we see... The Exodus Sabbath in creation. Because if we see it in creation, we need to be keeping the Sabbath as a day. Does that make sense? What do you think? Yes, Sabbath is a type of rest. Yes. Is to work in light of God's rest. As you enjoy God's rest. Right. And I think in John 5, Jesus is saying, my father still works. I'm working. Right. So it's rest. It's more than just like a lazy boy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yes. That's right. That's right. Sabbath is a type of rest. Rest is not a type of Sabbath. Okay. So where else do you see rest? As even as Pastor Drew leaves, you better you better remember his sermons. 
Yeah. If you've got a faithful judge who does these things, what happens? And they enjoyed rest for blah, blah, blah years. And then it happens all over again. What, what about the kings? The Davidic kings? With Solomon and the people, the people rested for 40 years. There was 40 years of rest in, 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 in the land. The land vomits them out. Yeah, I think what you see in the prophets is more of a forward looking to the new creation. Especially Isaiah, Hosea. And so then all of a sudden this guy comes, his name's Jesus, and he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Uh, He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And so we have to understand rest in light of Christ now. And so we're doing the work of biblical theology, right? Uh, We understand in Genesis and the creation that God's rest was tied to God's place and God's people enjoyed it and they enjoyed God's presence. And with the Sabbath, this was understood in light of the people of Israel in the land of Israel with the tabernacle or the temple. And the same thing with rest. But in kings and judges, it's now tied to the ruler. If you've got a great ruler, you've got, you got rest. If you've got a terrible ruler, you've got no rest. Right? And so now it's, again, progressive revelation. It's starting to make more... Uh, make it a little bit more clear that God's rest is now tied to the Davidic king. If you've got the king of David sitting on the throne as he should, the people of God are going to enjoy rest. And they're going to enjoy the land. They're going to enjoy um, God's rest, God's uh, salvation, obviously all of these things. Um, And then Christ comes, and now we have to understand how all of these things find their fulfillment in him. That's exactly right. Because what? You are resting from your works. Which means you're, namely, that you were, you said it earlier, the rest, the faith rest, trusting God, trusting God, which obviously the author of Hebrews is saying is a big deal, resting from works, in Jesus, because Jesus has done the work for you. But now, what else is it? It's, what is God's place? Is it the ethnic Israel's, that property near Palestine, Gaza, and that kind of stuff? Is it that? Is that where rest is? Where do the prophets say rest is going to be, and then where does Jesus in the New Testament say rest? Rest is in Him, but in what place? 
Where we, is he going to rule forever? Heaven. Not heaven. New creation. New creation. Yes. Yes, we're like Adam. We're the outpost, we're the image bearers, and we're taking the new creation to the end. Coverage is a bit spotty. Coverage is a bit spotty. 5G, 6G, and all that kind of stuff's coming. The new creation is God's place that Eden was pointing towards. So we don't go to Israel and Jerusalem's like a super special place to us. I mean, it's great because like, hey, things in the Bible happen here. But in terms of salvation, it's like Jerusalem's not my hope. The holy city is my hope. And Jerusalem's called the holy city in the Old Testament only because it's pointing to the true holy city, which is what? Author of Hebrews is going to say this in Hebrews 11 and 12. The holy city is the new creation where the true King David is going to rule forever. And it's never going to end. 2 Samuel 7. Okay. And then God's presence. Are we going to enjoy God's presence in the new creation? How? We, we're going to be with him. Yes. Do you remember we had this long argument about Ezekiel? Because temple, temple here, Temple here. God, God was present in the temple. Things got bad for Israel when God left the temple and he never came back. Until some guy struts into you know, John 2 and he's like, hey, I'm the temple. Tear down this thing and I'll build it in three days. And here it's going to be the new temple is what? Is it going to be like a fourth or fifth temple? Like a building? It's the people. Because of, because of who? Because of Jesus who is the true temple. And his spirit is on us. We're indwelt. That's why Paul says, you can't engage in sexual immorality. Don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? Which is why in Revelation, the temple to come is described as a cube, equal height, length, and width. Do you know why it's described as a cube? What was a cube in the temple? The Holy of Holies. The people now are the Holy of Holies because we're with the Lord, right? So rest in Christ is tied to all these things. I mean, you are the temple. You are a new creation, and we are out of exile. And furthermore, we're gathered together, so it's not just new, me, new creation, me, it's a church. Right. Right. And we're sojourners and strangers walking out of exile, out of slavery, to the promised land. We just haven't gotten there yet, but new creation's coming. Just like Israel walking out of Babylon. All right, we'll end it there. Some people are like sweating profusely. I saw somebody with eyes crossed. And uh, I don't want to put too much on you. But I'm happy, to, uh, I'm happy to chat longer. Rest is tied to that. And the author of Hebrews is saying that is what we will enjoy because of Jesus who is bringing this rest by his new covenant work. 
it's going to keep getting picked up. So we'll keep talking about it. How about I pray for us? Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ, and we thank you that uh, the Son is better in every way. He's better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua. He brings a new covenant. Uh, All the promises that you gave in the Old Testament have found their yes and amen in Christ. Lord, would you help us to read our Old Testaments rightly so that we might understand how your promises have found their yes in Christ, how these uh, institutions and people and events are to be understood. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to know these things just so that we can have bigger heads, but ultimately so that our faith will be strengthened, that we will eat solid food and not live off milk, and so that we will be more bold and confident uh, in the hope that we hold to, and we will be more bold and confident in proclaiming this hope to those around us. And would you help us to encourage and exhort one another uh, all the day, every day, uh, so that we all might persevere to the end and enter into your rest uh, in the new creation. We thank you for your grace in Christ, and we thank you for your word. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, we'll keep working on it. Uh, we're going to do the same section again, uh, Hebrews 3, 1 to five ten. so just read that same passage again, and we'll be working on it next week. Three, verse 1, mm-hmm, chapter 3, all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. So you're supposed to read it for this week, just read it again. <laughs>